Welcome to Not Your Daughter's Witchcraft, podcast hosted by me, Lilith Amberley. If you're exploring witchcraft for something beyond the aesthetic, if some social media platforms make you cringe and say, that's not me, if you're looking to build a practice that enhances your life, then you, my friend, are in the right place. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Hey there, my friend. Welcome to another episode of Not Your Daughter's Witchcraft. Today, I'm talking about myths and misconceptions. So whether you are a brand new witch or you've been practicing witchcraft for years, you're going to come across people that have questions or really don't understand what witchcraft is all about. Maybe you have some questions yourself. Now, before we get into that, I do have some questions this week from The Witches Inn. The Witches Inn is our new segment that provides an opportunity to you, my witches, to ask all of your witchcraft questions. I had multiple questions that came in, and as I'm thinking about this, they're actually good examples of one of the misconceptions that I was going to talk about. And that misconception is that all witches are psychic. I received at least a half dozen questions asking for very specific predictions without much detail. Here are two examples. Will I get the house I want and how will this situation be resolved? And the second, will I ever live together with my child again? And the rest of the questions were kind of along those lines. When people ask questions like this, they are very emotionally invested in the situation. And I wish that I could answer those questions for you, but I can't because I don't know. I don't consider myself a psychic. I found that People commonly think that being a witch means you're psychic. Not all witches are psychic, and not all psychics are witches. I am a tarot reader, and I use the cards in combination with my intuition to get insight into a situation, but I don't even use the cards in a strictly predictive manner. I use them to get to the deeper issues going on to provide insight to me. So for example, instead of asking, will I get the job or will I get the house, I might ask, what I should focus on to help increase my odds of getting the outcome that I want. The reason I do this is because I believe that the cards will give you an answer based on the immediate moment, but time marches on quickly and situations change. If the cards tell me no, I might just throw my hands up in the air and say, well, that's it, I'm done trying because there's no chance. Or if they say yes, I might also sit back and stop taking the actions I need to take to make something happen because the cards already said, yes, it was going to happen. But you see, as soon as I did that, I've changed the path. That's why I always try to ask for insight or what I should be focused on instead. That continues to keep the situation an active situation that I can continue to influence in a positive way. Now, if I do a reading with the question, how will this situation be resolved? It also leaves me and my actions out of the picture. A more productive question might be, what actions can I take to resolve whatever the situation is? Changing up the question just a little bit may give you something more useful to work with. I don't intend on doing readings or answering these type of questions on the show, but I did add a quick reference sheet to my free resources to help you develop meaningful questions for tarot readings, whether you're doing them for yourself or you're going to someone else for them. So go to witchlifeacademy.lilithamberley.com forward slash resources for that free reference sheet. The link will be in the show notes so you don't have to remember that whole web address. So that covered misconception number one. We're not all psychic and hopefully gave a little bit of insight into those questions that came in and what I can and unfortunately can't do. 
The next question that came in was from Kathy, who's looking for a simple protection spell because their grandchild is being bullied at school. First, I am so sorry. As a person who was bullied as a child relentlessly, it breaks my heart when kids are bullied. So second, be sure that your grandchild has the psychological support to deal with this issue and that someone is taking mundane measures to address the issue. I know, though, that unfortunately there are times that this just doesn't get addressed even when you do go through the appropriate process to do so. So in this case, instead of a protection spell, I'm going to change it up just a little bit because I would try a binding spell for this situation. And I know that gets a bit sticky in the ethics for some people, but binding someone's actions so they don't hurt you is okay in my book. You just need to ask yourself if it's okay in yours. And I think I would probably do something like a freezer spell. So I'd take an egg and I would write the bully's name on it. Then I would wrap the egg in black string or ribbon. And I'd be repeating something like the person's name. We'll call them bully's going to be Tommy and the grandchild is going to be Bill. Tommy, I bind you and your actions from negatively affecting Bill, my grandchild. And notice what I did here. I lightened it up a bit and I kept it contained to how those actions affect your grandchild instead of binding the person altogether. Tommy, I bind you and your actions from negatively affecting Billy, my grandchild. Now, once you're finished wrapping that egg, you're going to re keep repeating that phrase or something similar to it while you're wrapping the egg in the string or the ribbon. Once the egg is completely covered, so you want to wrap it up real good there, you can't see any more of the egg, you're going to put that egg in the freezer. So you've bound the person and their actions with the string and then you freeze it. That's the spell. Now, you could also do a protection spell around your grandchild, but I'm more inclined to go right for the bully in this case and correct the behavior. If you feel that your grandchild, you know, want that little bit of extra protection, I like black tourmaline for absorbing negative energy and for protection. So perhaps your grandchild could carry a small piece in their pocket. So I wish you and your grandchild the very best. I hope this gets taken care of. And most importantly, that your grandchild knows that this is not about them. It's about the bully. That's hard. It's just hard to swallow because every, when you're a kid, everything is about you. So I send you lots of love and lots of luck with the situation. Now, if you submitted a question and you didn't hear it in this episode, tune in to next week's episode. The episodes are recorded well in advance of the day that they're released. So it's very possible that I recorded this episode before you submitted your question. Next, I want to talk about the misconception that we'll call the devil is in the details of our craft or isn't. And I'm talking about the myth that witches are devil worshipers or we're in league with the devil or in order to be a witch, you have to make a pact with the devil. Now, are there people out there who worship the Christian devil? Sure, I'm sure that there are, but most modern witches aren't one of them. Now, I'm speaking very generally here, but many witches do not even recognize the spiritual being of Satan or the Christian devil. So why do people think this? Like, where did this start? Well, witchcraft has been condemned by the Catholic Church since about 900 CE. But a lot of the hysteria around witchcraft, specifically in Europe, revolved around Heinrich Kramer, who was a German inquisitor and monk. He was granted the authority to investigate cases of supposed witchcraft and sorcery by a local bishop. But that 
bishop then later withdrew his support of Kramer and threw him out of his diocese. But that didn't stop Kramer because after that, he went on to write the Malleus Maleficarum, or the Hammer of Witches in 1486. And that book, many people don't know this, was actually condemned by some of the highest ranking theologians as being unethical. And those were people of the Inquisition at the University of Cologne. But it was, unfortunately, accepted by others and its popularity rose. It became a handbook used in secular courts in conducting witchcraft trials, and the prosecution of those accused of witchcraft became much more brutal. So that's Kramer. Then you have King James. So I'm talking about King James VI of Scotland, who then became King James I of England in 1603. So James was the son of the famed Mary, Queen of Scots. And without going through a long history of the Stuarts and the Tudors, his place in history had and still has, in some cases, a direct impact on some people's views of witchcraft. James is said, on some accounts, to have been obsessed with witchcraft. He blamed his near death at sea to witches calling up a storm. And he believed that witches foretold of his mother's death long before it happened. It's also said that he had a disdain toward women. So these beliefs and prejudices perpetuated violence against people, predominantly women, for many, many years. Then you have the confessions of those accused of witchcraft, where the accused admit to having agreements with the devil. So I'm going to use probably the very best example, and those are the confessions of Isabel Gowdy in 1662. So Isabel was and still is probably the most famous witch of Scotland. In her recorded confessions, she admits to meeting the devil. She's quoted to say, we all get our power from the devil. When we ask for it, we call him our Lord. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. There were four confessions and there is a lot of detail in there. But even still 350 or so years later, there's a lot of controversy around those confessions. See, these confessions were important because it was claimed that she confessed them freely. We don't know that for a fact. It's very likely that she would have been in solitary confinement during this time, and we don't know that she didn't endure any torture. There's also some suggestions that she may have suffered from delusions. So we're likely never going to know the full story, but we do know is that events of hundreds of years ago still lend themselves to the notion that witches are in league with the devil, and while it should be ancient history, it isn't. Witchcraft law in the United Kingdom was in effect until 1951, and while not actively enforced, witchcraft laws in Canada weren't repealed until 2018. In South Africa, the witchcraft laws are still in force, and in Saudi Arabia, the penalty for witchcraft is death, and those are just some examples. As far as the United States goes, we've come a long way, but discrimination still happens. But what we do have is the fact that religion is a protected freedom in the United States, which leads right into the next misconception, and that is that practicing witchcraft is not a protected religious freedom. So I want to read directly from the U.S. Equal Opportunity Employment Commission's website. I will put the link to this in the show notes, and then you can decide if what you practice meets the criteria that's protected. So Title VII defines religion to include all aspects of religious observance and practice as well as belief, not just practices that are mandated or prohibited by a tenet of the individual's faith. Religion includes not only traditional organized religions, but also religious beliefs that are new, uncommon, 
not part of a formal church or sect, only subscribed to by a small number of people, or that seem illogical or unreasonable to others. A belief is religious for Title VII purposes if it is religious in the person's own scheme of things. In other words, it's a sincere and meaningful belief that occupies a place in the life of its possessor parallel to that filled by God. Religious beliefs include theistic beliefs as well as non-theistic moral or ethical beliefs as to what is right and wrong, which are sincerely held with the strength of traditional religious views. Although courts generally resolve doubts about particular beliefs in favor of finding that they are religious, beliefs are not protected merely because they are strongly held. Rather, religion typically concerns ultimate ideas about life, purpose, and death. Courts have looked for certain features to determine if an individual's beliefs can be considered religious. One court explained, first, a religion addresses fundamental and ultimate questions having to do with deep and imponderable matters. Second, a religion is comprehensive in nature. It consists of a belief system as opposed to an isolated teaching. Third, religion often can be recognized by the presence of certain formal and external signs. Personal preferences are not religious beliefs protected by Title VII. Determining whether a practice is religious turns not on the nature of the activity, but on the person's motivation. The same practice might be engaged in by one person for religious reasons and by another person for purely secular reasons. For example, in this case, one employee, so we're talking about employees in an you know, employer-employee relationship, one employee might observe certain dietary restrictions for religious reasons, while another employee adheres to the very same dietary restrictions, but for secular reasons. In that instance, the same practice in one case might be subject to reasonable accommodation under Title VII because an employee engages in the practice for religious reasons and in another case might not be subject to reasonable accommodation because the practice is engaged in for secular reasons. And I am reading directly from their website. Again, I will put the link in the show notes. So now this is closely related to misconception number four. And misconception number four is twofold. First is that witches are born and not learned. And the flip side is that anyone can call themselves a witch. So if you call yourself a witch, you're a witch. And I'll get to that flip side in a minute because that's really what goes back to what I was just talking about. So being able to practice magic or practice witchcraft may be something that some people are born with, but it is something that everyone has as a birthright. Witchcraft can be learned. Are some people more talented or skilled right out of the gate? Sure. You know, just like an athlete, there's going to be some people that are more naturally skilled than someone else, even if they have the same physical characteristics. But that doesn't mean that the other person can't learn. It just might take more practice and more work. Now, the flip side is that anyone can be a witch. If you say you're a witch, then you're a witch. And everything that you do is magic, no matter what it is. So let me start by saying, I really could care less what you call yourself. But to the rest of the world, when you call yourself a witch, it means something. Being a witch means practicing some sort of witchcraft, however you define that. Let me put it this way. Would you call yourself a baseball player if you never play baseball? You know, just because I throw on a baseball cap in the morning when I'm on carpool duty doesn't mean I'm a baseball player. So if you're putting on a black dress or a black suit and you hang a pentacle around your neck and call yourself a witch, well, that's great. Again, I don't care. 
just be careful because if you're ever in a position to defend it under Title VII, it's probably not going to fly. Like you can't just use the aesthetic, then face potential discrimination, and then claim Title VII when you don't sincerely hold the beliefs that go along with it. You know, if it's just the aesthetic, that's the part, you know, it's it's not going to fly. So I'm just pointing that out so we're careful with what we call ourselves, why we call ourselves what we call ourselves, and how we're portraying ourselves to other people and kind of know what the law, a little bit of what the law says, so you can best protect yourself in those type of situations that might arise. So I hope that this episode cleared up some of the misconceptions that you might have about witchcraft. There are many, many others, but I'm going to stop here for today. If you have questions about witchcraft, please go ahead and send them in. I would love to address them in the Witches Inn. The link to do that is in the show notes, along with the link to the Equal Opportunity Employment Commission. Now, before you go, I want to make sure that we stay connected. So go ahead, join my VIP list. It's witchlifeacademy.lilithamberley.com forward slash resources. The link will be in the show notes. And I want you to join my VIP list because when you do, you're going to have access to all of my free resources, the ones that are there now and the ones that I publish in the future. You're also going to have access to any upcoming offers, programs, courses, etc. that are going to come out. So I don't want you to miss that. I want to make sure that we stay connected. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, please go ahead and give the show a rating. That's so important, especially for newer podcasts. I would really, really appreciate that. Until next time, I hope you have a most wonderful and magical day.